Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center, on a warm and humid day in September. Yesterday, I took my motorcycle and rode it out to Rosemead, California, where I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Ananda Gurge. He is the Dean of Academic Affairs at the University of the West. He's also the Adjunct Professor of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Peace Studies at California State University in Fullerton. He's the Vice President and Liaison Officer to the United Nations and UNESCO for the World Fellowship of Buddhists. He's Chairman of the World Buddhist University Council, and he's a patron of the European Buddhist Union. He's written over 70 books on Buddhism. So he has credentials, needless to say, and what you're about to hear is my interview. We covered a lot of territory, but we only had a little over an hour to speak, and he consented to do another interview. Um, And so uh, I'm going to take him up on that. But what you're about to hear is the interview I did yesterday with Dr. Ananda Gurge. I think you'll find it interesting. I think you'll find it useful. So without further introduction, my interview with Dr. Ananda Gurge. Okay, this is a um, podcast. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Ananda W. Gurge. Uh, And right now I'm sitting in his office and we're in Rosemead, California, and this is the University of the West. And I'll be asking him more about that later in the interview. But Dr. Gerge, I want to thank you very much for consenting to speak with me today. Thank you very much for finding the time to do it. Well, and I know a couple years ago I was able to take a a few classes from you and found it just to be fascinating. You you have such an in-depth knowledge of Buddhism. You've written over 70 books, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, around. And you're the Dean of Students here? Dean of Academic Affairs. Okay, at the University of the West, and it was accredited in February of this year? That's right. And what kind of classes do you offer here for people that are interested in Buddhism? We have a Department of Religious Studies in which we have programs starting for those who are not interested in a degree, at the certificate level, we have a certificate in Buddhist thought and comparative religion. Then we have a Bachelor's of Arts program uh, with two concentrations. Again, is uh, Buddhist studies and comparative religion. And then we have an MA with the same concentrations. And the Buddhist studies turn out to be the most popular. And we have a doctorate in Buddhist studies which is a professional degree in which people are trained more to use Buddhism for ministerial purposes, management purposes, and so on, institutions, setting up institutions, managing institutions. And then we have this teaching and research degree of a PhD. And uh, again, we call it in religious studies, but our Buddhist studies emphasis is very strong. Mm, Wonderful. Now, um, you come from Sri Lanka, and I was in your country in 1998, 
and uh, visiting my teacher's, Dr. Ratnasar's temples, and found it to be a wonderful experience. Um, what I would like to ask you uh, to begin the interview is, what was it in your upbringing that made you so interested in Buddhism, interested enough to write 70 books on the subject? Uh, it was a uh, process, as you know, for all of us, religion is an accident of birth. <laughs> the way I was born yeah. uh, in the city of Gaul, which is in the southern coast of Sri Lanka, uh, the street in which I was born, any other house in which I would have been born, I would have been in a different religion. Mm. But my house happened to be a Buddhist home. And as you know, in Sri Lanka, Buddhism is a very the seriously taken way of life in the sense that from very young days you are introduced to the Buddhist temple. The temple plays the biggest role in your village. It is the center for everything. It is the center for ceremonies. It is the center for education. It is the center for culture. And it is where children are sent from very young days to get acquainted with the Buddhist monk who is a natural leader. Mm -hmm. And the Buddhist monks of Sri Lanka, well educated and very well trained, are people who can inspire an enormous amount of uh, interest in you uh, with regard to matters spiritual. But in my case, it turned out to be quite interesting because my father was himself somebody who was quite deeply interested in the revival movement that was taking place in Sri Lanka which began in 1880, uh, which is very important for the American uh, citizens to know, uh, because an American from New Jersey, Orange, New Jersey, uh, went to Sri Lanka in 1880 and became the person who, to a great extent, uh, became the spearheaded our movement towards national liberation and also the revival of Sri Lankan culture, language, literature, and above all, religion. He became a Buddhist along with Madame Blavatsky. Mm -hmm. At that time, was there a movement uh, of Christian missionaries in Sri Lanka? Oh, yeah. And, and that's why Colonel Alcott uh, is, is such a distinguished figure in the history of Sri Lanka that he sort of turned the, the, the tide, if you will? Yes, Sri Lanka has had, uh, a major part of Sri Lanka has had uh, foreign influence from 1505. Mm. The Portuguese went there and along with them went Catholicism and that was in 1505. They were there for 150 years and they converted a fair portion of people to Catholicism and even today we have about 6-7% of the country's 20 million population are Catholics. Mm. Then the Dutch came to Sri Lanka, replaced the Portuguese and ruled for another 150 and they brought the Reformation from Europe and they worked against the Catholics, persecuted the Catholics and uh, tried to uh, turn the country to Dutch Reformed Church. Now is that a Protestant movement? It's a Protestant movement, okay. Calvinist. Okay. And then the British came in 1796 and they in turn uh, had a very difficult situation to solve. I don't think the British as a government were interested in Christianity so much, but the Dutch had left behind a good school system. Mm. 
and they did not know how to run a school system because the British never ran a national school system. So they invited the Christian missionaries of the world to come to Sri Lanka and run the school system. Mm. So the missionaries came and took over our school system and with that started the spread of Christianity in a very big way. Uh, they were very successful uh, and uh, in England itself Christianity, the Anglican Church, was a very powerful part of the government. It was established in the sense it was a government department uh, paid by the government. In fact, the early churches in Sri Lanka were built with government funds out of taxes. Uh, and so it was, uh, the, they could do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And there came a time that the Buddhists were not very happy the way that the Christians were going about in this business. And they started rallying among themselves to answer the issues that were raised in Christianity. There was a very interesting period when uh, interfaith studies were being undertaken. Mm. The Buddhist monks studied Christianity mm. and they were ready to question the missionaries and they challenged them to public debates. Mm. So the first debate was in the village where I was born in 1865, that's just coincidence, but the fact may have some impact on my father. In 1865, they had the first debate where the Christians really found that the Buddhists knew their Christianity and were able to raise many questions. And of course, at that time, the Bible was under very uh, strict scrutiny in USA itself with people like Tom Paine, uh, Bishop Cabezon and Ingersoll and all their works were widely read by these Buddhist monks. And the, in 1873, there was a major uh, controversy, as we call, or a debate between the Buddhist and Christians in a city 17 miles to the south of the capital, Colombo. This was covered by an American journalist who wrote eight articles on the great debate Buddhism, Christianity, face to face. Mm. And these eight articles that he wrote of the controversy or the debate were published in book form and Colonel Alcott read it in 1875 in USA. And that was a time that he and Madame Blavatsky were looking for what they call wisdom from the East in their theosophical movement. And uh, they have been experimenting with uh, some forms of Hinduism. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Hindu leader that they were very close to, but unfortunately, before they could work too much with him, the poor man died. Mm -hmm. uh, so two years in India did not bring them any worthwhile activities to get engaged in. So they both, Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott, thought they would come to Sri Lanka and see what they could do uh, for the promotion of uh, Theosophic movement. They were the founders of the Theosophical Society of mm -hmm. USA. And as such, they thought that it was possible for the Buddhist monks of Sri Lanka to play a role. And some of these Buddhist monks have really inspired uh, Alcott uh, with their learning, with their devotion. So he was telling them, if only you come to USA, you will have thousands of people joining you in your ranks. But to the Sri Lankans, 
who were at that time uh, wanted some kind of leadership that the British would take seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, the national leaders, the Buddhist monks, they were fairly strong, but having Colonel Olcott as a white Buddhist <laughs> had a very big impact. I see. Uh, in fact, that's why the book that is written on his uh, life, mm -hmm. uh, published from the University of Boston, uh, they call him the White Buddhist. The White Buddhist. The yeah. White Buddhist. And he went to Sri Lanka, embraced Buddhism almost within days of landing in Sri Lanka. Mm. And the one great idea that he had was that Buddhists could only raise their heads if they would give their children a modern education. Mm. The Christian missionaries were only interested in spreading Christianity. Yeah. So their system was to open schools in the Sinhala and the Tamil medium. But some Christian missionaries knew that unless you had the elite leadership, that religion would not succeed. So they were preparing young men and women, young men mostly, for careers in the government which has happened to be requiring a good knowledge of English. So as far back as 1832, uh, they made English the official language and demanded that everybody who wants to join the government should be educated in English. And these schools have brought quite a large number of young people uh, trained in English with uh, examinations that they passed in England or sometimes in Calcutta where they had in India uh, some institutions already. Mm -hmm. Colonel Orcott's answer was, if the Buddhists want to compete with the Christians and that is the Christian nationals in the country, they must be educationally their equals. So he went about setting up schools and the six of the schools that he set up are even today functioning. They are the six or seven most important Buddhist schools in the country with mm. uh, histories of 120, 125 years wow. now. And these schools turned out a large number of very well-trained, educated young men mm -hmm. who, as Orkut thought, took over the national leadership. Now, two of the things that struck me about Colonel Alcott was, one, a book he wrote called The Buddhist Catechism. And I, I have a copy of that, and it's fundamental. But was that in response to the Christian catechism? It, yeah, it was. Uh, he took Christian catechism, which are taught in schools, as the basis, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but his idea was that there was nothing... Uh, in 1881, when the book was written, the Buddhists knew uh, very little about... or the, the non-Buddhists who were reading English knew so little of Buddhism yeah. that uh, he thought of writing something uh, which also had the blessings of the monks of Sri Lanka. Mm. So this book was written under the guidance of the chief Buddhist monk who was at that time a scholar. He set, a, set up one of the earliest of our Buddhist colleges for Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka, which still continues mm -hmm. uh, in 1875. Uh, I'm sorry, 1873, and a second one was established in 1875. So he was very close to this uh, leadership of the Sangha. Mm -hmm. And his idea, uh, the, he found that people had to know Buddhism in uh, as briefly as possible, 
So he wrote this, uh, which went into about 40 editions within the first 10 years yeah. and translated into so many different languages. And for the major part of uh, the Western people's knowledge of Buddhism, uh, two books played an equal role. A Light of Asia, which was published in 1879, that is two years before Olcott's Catechism, okay. on the life of the Buddha, mm -hmm. a poem mm -hmm. by Edwin Arnold. Okay. Yes, uh, the, and uh, this book, uh, Buddhist Catechism. The Buddhist Catechism was published, as I said, with the with a certificate from the chief monk of Sri Lanka, uh -huh. and that gave it uh, that kind of authority that his work was authentic and was accepted by the Buddhists. Yeah. Uh, this is his major number one contribution. And number two contribution, uh, which is equally innovative from when you think of today's, from today's point of view, when he realized that Buddhism was in so many different schools and sects, that each country had its own brand of Buddhism, and he was very keen that there should be an understanding. So by 1894, uh, he has drawn up a 14-point platform. Mm. It's a 14-point platform on which all Buddhists could agree, thereby bringing in the essential teachings that uh, Mahayana, uh, Theravada or the Southern Buddhism and the Tibetan Buddhism they all agreed, and he managed to get the imprimatur of many of these other schools, in addition to those of Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, and so on, uh, to show that Buddhism was one. Mm -hmm. He gave that message that the central centerpiece of Buddhism, the central doctrines, are identical in all the sects, and where we differed are certain customs, certain mm -hmm. rituals. Uh, certain practices and whatever the languages, as the beliefs of the local areas could uh, bring us new elements. So all this turned out to be, these two things turned out to be his greatest contribution. Well, and then another contribution is the flag, the Buddhist flag, isn't it? Which is still yeah, used now today. Yeah, the Buddhist flag is a very interesting kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the, we used to have what is called a banner, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where the six colored rays that were supposed to emanate from the Buddha's body. Mm. They thought that the Buddha had a halo around him, mm -hmm. which had blue, white and so on, those six colors. Or the, and um, this was done in such a way that we have four colors, uh, the five colors horizontally. Mm -hmm. And what is supposed to be a mixture of colors, the, the vertically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these were six, seven foot high banners which were hung on walls or hung from trees uh, rather than used as flags because the concept of flag was not that very uh, popular in our part of the world. Okay, so it was a banner rather than flag initially. It was there. At first. Okay. And uh, he looked at it, uh -huh. took a pair of scissors and chopped off that last vertical columns mm. to be of the same height as the parallel bars and then what uh, was a banner could be uh, hoisted as a flag. <laughs> and so he became the originator of the flag as opposed to the 
banner. As a, okay, yeah. I see. Uh, so this is uh, the, another contribution, and one more contribution that uh, he made to Buddhism, uh, which was very important at that time for the self-esteem of the Buddhists. They want to be sure that they are on the winning side and their point was being made, and that was to get the Buddha's birthday declared a holiday, mm. a public holiday by the government. Okay. And uh, he went to London and argued with the British colonial government and managed to get this day declared a Buddhist holiday in 1884 for the first time. And that is the time that the flag was also prepared to, to celebrate this event. And these four or five items made him a very remarkable leader in the eyes of our people. But the greater contribution he made was that he identified several people, of them two young people, uh, who turned out to be the national leaders of the country in two fronts. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, when he was in Sri Lanka and going collecting money uh, for his schools, the Buddhist schools that he wanted to set up so that they could uh, teach the elite in English and therefore they will be able to uh, compete with the Christian elite mm -hmm. and one day be able to serve the country's uh, national leadership. Uh, when he was doing that, he found that he had no support from the local people. Hmm. They were only ready to go on weekends. And one day he wrote, uh, gave an interview to the newspaper saying, I have been here but not a single Buddhist came to me uh, to go with me and help in this and uh, I'm almost getting loose in my faith. When a 17-year-old young man read this and uh, he had just got a job in the education department as a clerk, his name was Don David. Uh, and the family was a Heva Vitarana, well-known family in the country. Father was a great uh, maker of furniture, importing teak wood from Burma and so on. So it's a successful family. And this young man, a man was supposed to become a government servant, so he was already in the ministry of, uh, in the Department of Education. He read this and uh, he resigned his job and went to uh, him and said, I will go with you. And uh, he got so inspired by both Colonel Olcott and Madame Blavatsky. In fact, Madame Blavatsky almost treated him like an adopted uh, or adoptive son. Mm. And under their influence, he became Sri Lanka's most noted uh, Buddhist leader. And uh, later he gave up his uh, household life. Uh, adapted the rank of a homeless person in the sense he didn't become a Buddhist monk but uh, he became a celibate uh, devoted entirely to uh, the religion mm -hmm. and called himself Anagarika and changed his name from David to Dharmapala mm. so Anagarika Dharmapala is a protege uh, of Colonel Olcott wow. and if the Colonel Olcott did nothing else but he just trained and put Anagarika Dharmapala in that position from which he took over, uh, you know, in 1893. Just uh, the 1880 was the time that uh, he came across Colonel Olcott, but 1893, 
Adhikarika Dharmapala was ready to come to Chicago ah. and uh, make the first speech that was ever made on Buddhism on uh, U.S. soil wow. from Chicago in wow. the uh, Parliament of World Religions. Mm -hmm. uh, all that happened because Colonel Alcott and Madame Blavatsky played that wonderful role in inspiring this young man. Uh, was one person. The other person that he inspired was a young man who took to education and later to politics. A person called Don Baron Chaitilaka. Mm. Uh, he was an educator. He was the principal of one of the schools that Colonel Alcott set up. Uh, but later he took to a political career and uh, under the British rule he came to the highest elected position as the uh, president of the cabinet of ministers under the British rule. Wow. So these two men were my father's greatest heroes. Mm. So you were introduced to them through your father? My father. My father. Okay. Had, in fact, my home had a photograph of Colonel Alkotanaragari Dharmapala uh -huh. uh, in the hall. And invariably, if the father was not telling a story about them to us, he was introducing these people to our visitors and talking about their greatness and why they happened to be honored with a place in our drawing room. And uh, this inspired me to a great extent. Okay. Uh, but my father wanted me to have a good English education and I was sent to a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. and Catholic was your father a Buddhist? I'm, I'm, I'm well, assuming yes, he Buddhist was. Is a Buddhist. My mother but, was a Buddhist. But, uh, but he sent you to the Catholic school because it was a better education? It was the two reasons. Okay. A, it was a very good school. Uh -huh. And B, uh, it was one of the very few missionary schools that was affordable for the income that my family could spare uh, on our children. Okay. Because this uh, Catholic priest from Netherlands, uh, who was a professor of astronomy of the Papal Seminary mm. in Kandy, mm -hmm. he thought that uh, running a Papal Seminary for Asia in Sri Lanka and being not doing some service to the people in that area was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, while uh, in his spare time, he set up a school uh, for children. Wow. Uh, and uh, there was a certain amount of um, uh, special attention that the school received because those children were doing extremely well. So, you had to be somebody to get into that school in the sense of uh, uh, some intelligent tests and all kinds of things had to be passed. But here I was in that school, and these Catholic priests impressed me so much. I learned the Bible, I learned uh, a lot of Christianity from them and uh, I used to pass the examinations and get prizes and this bothered my father. And my father's uh, approach to it, later only I realized that he was concerned about it, but his approach was a very, very new one. He wanted me to come back from uh, school have some tea and uh, snacks in the evening and go to the temple and spend three hours with the Buddhist monks learning whatever the temple could teach. Mm. So while here I am preparing for an engineering career and in the evenings I go to the temple and there were two or three young monks, novices, who were being trained in Pali and Singhala by the senior monks and I joined their class and I learned Pali and Singhala while... Uh, so, it so happened by the time I was sitting for the first 
set of government examinations in my science subjects and English. I was also sitting in Singhalese and Pali <laughs> for the same examinations that the Buddhist monks were taking for their monastic preparation. So at one stage people were not sure whether I am hoping to become a Buddhist <laughs> monk or whether I will keep to my uh, career. Uh, could, I, could I just uh, stop you and digress just one moment? For people that don't know about Pali, who might be listening to this podcast, it's the canonical language of early Buddhism. That's right. And I know some people think, some scholars think, that it may have been similar to Magadhi's. Yeah, it is Magadhi. It is Magadhi. Magadha is the district or the kingdom in which Buddha uh, did most of his teaching. Okay. Magadhi means the language of that area. Okay. And so Pali is an the offshoot? Common, yes. uh, Pali is an offshoot of Sanskrit. You know, Indian languages... They are the language of the elite, mm -hmm. which was Sanskrit. Okay. Then, according to the rank of the people, they had uh, vernaculars of various various dialects. And Magadhi was the vernacular spoken by the ma man in the street. The okay. And Buddha wanted to talk to the people. He didn't want to talk in Sanskrit, because as a uh, prince, uh, his background and his training had been in Sanskrit. Mm. But, and you see his familiarity with Sanskrit in his discourses mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the literature that was there at that time, he knew in Sanskrit, but he chose to speak to the people. So it's like somebody who decides to speak Ebonics in uh, Los Angeles rather than English, <laughs> uh, with the idea that you reach a particular kind of community. Uh, community that is Buddhist uh, approach. So I learned Pali because and, and and then Pali itself. When was that? When was that made the official canonical language? Could it you was you know the Buddhist uh, discourses mm -hmm. were remembered by the monks and the nuns mm -hmm. in the language in which the Buddha preached. Okay, and the word Pali means the text. Okay. So, when you say Pali, it is the language of the text. Mm -hmm. And when were the first texts laid out? Uh, according according to, to the tradition, uh -huh. immediately three months after the Buddha, while the Buddha was alive, okay. they kept on making compilations of the Buddha's teachings. Okay. You see, Buddha seemed to have been a person who was conscious of his historic role. Uh, mm. Right from the first sermon, he seemed to have encouraged his disciples to memorize them, remember them, and place them according to length, according to subject, in various compilations. Mm -hmm. okay. So that a literature was in the form uh, formation right through the 45 years of Buddha's uh, discourses. Mm -hmm. So by the time he died, mm -hmm. within three months, 500 monks could get together and the first council, first council, okay, could rehearse and fix and say, this is what we know as the Buddha's teachings. Okay, and about five or six years before Buddha's death, one of his closest disciples, he prepared a list of head words, so that the entire teaching of Buddha is available in the form of computer loadable in a search engine, head words, 
so that every one of the sub-themes that he dealt with can be traced with reference to one single word wow. and arrange them according to the number of topics that each theme contained. Mm. A theme dealing with one, theme dealing with two, three, four and so on. Mm -hmm. So this is an indication that in Buddhism uh, we are dealing with a group of people who were right through conscious that what they were doing was going to have centuries of impact mm, mm. and therefore they had to prepare the groundwork. Mm -hmm. They started writing commentaries or explanatory notes, working out the grammar and the, poeti uh, the, the poetic rules and metrics and all kinds of things that were part of literature. Mm -hmm. So Buddhist literature in the Pali language uh, grew in a very scientific manner. Mm. So this is the reason why uh, we have the 45 years of teachings of the Buddha in a five-foot library which is uh, consisting of 45 volumes in the in Roman characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so here you are now studying Pali and Sanskrit. In my teenage. In your teenage years. In my teenage because that is what the Buddhist monks learned in their temples. Okay. And three hours of the day I had to be with the Buddhist monks because that was my father's antidote for being a great lover of Western literature, Western mm -hmm. religions and uh, taking a great interest in the Bible and the Christian studies. And to me today, uh, that is my greatest asset that I can move from one to another. Mm -hmm. yes. I mean, uh, I am at home in so many great uh, civilizations yes. because this was my uh, background. And the, uh, as far as the leadership that I came to know, my, the principal of the school was uh, Flemish-speaking uh, uh, the Hollander. My English professor was Father Debray, who spoke French, and there sometimes when I speak English, occasionally people hear a French uh, pronunciation creeping in, uh, even today. And uh, my scout master was uh, Italian, <laughs> and I was converted to my studies of uh, Oriental languages by a Christian priest at the age of sixteen. Wow. Uh, just a couple of weeks before I went to Colombo to join the technical college to prepare for a BSc in engineering. Okay. I was uh, celebrating my 16th birthday and I had gone to see my this father Perniola, Vitus Perniola, a great Pali and Sanskrit scholar from them and the Catholics, a man who had written many books. So we were very friendly even after I left that school. And um, I was telling him that uh, one of the reasons for coming to that uh, to see him was to say that I'd soon be in Colombo and I'll be. Uh, and he said, "No, engineering is not your career." Really? Yeah. Wow. So I said, "Why?" He said, "You should." In 1944, he tells me, "Your country is not going to be like this. It's going to be independent. It's going to need people like you in important places." Mm. You're not an engineer. You must learn more of the culture of this part of the world because not only will the new country that emerges want people like you, but the one day the world will want you to interpret the culture of this part of the world to them. Wow. 
at so the age of 16. about being a politician? Is that how you, you received know, Then that? I asked him, what am I to do? Yeah, yeah. He said, join the civil service. Ah, okay. So civil service was the senior executive service for which an examination was held concurrently in London and in Colombo. Okay. And about 1,000 people usually competed, and five people were selected every year, mm -hmm. and they started at the top. So, we were, became independent in 1948. By that time, I have already got my, have gone to the university, and I have started learning Oriental languages, and history, and uh, culture of our part of the world, as he told me. And with that selection of subjects, I could, in 1952, join the civil service. Okay. And uh, as he told me, I could play a major role in it. Now, here I am with a very good uh, grounding in my early scientific education, which mm -hmm. made me little different from the others who studied these subjects from the beginning. Uh, it gave me a wider outlook on life. Would have been an engineer, but here I chose to be um, a humanities student. And I then some very unusual thing happens. When I finish my degree, I am two years underage to sit for the civil service examination. Hmm. And I used that two years to do a PhD. Okay. So by age 24, I have already got my PhD. Wow. Uh, because that was a very unusual uh, circumstance mm -hmm. that enabled me to do it. What did you get your PhD in? It is in Sanskrit and history, or rather it is in okay. history based on Sanskrit sources. Okay. Yeah. It is published at the Society of the Ramayana, uh -huh. one of the books that are mine that are published very early. So, with this kind of background, yeah. I was in the civil service, well, no, just to stop, just one second. When did you write your first book? Uh, the very first book I wrote when I was 18. Really? Yeah. And when what was I, the topic of the book? Uh, it was an introduction to the... Sing, uh, it was on the history of Sinhalese literature. Wow. It an uh, introduction to Sinhalese literature. Wow. But the amusing thing is I wrote it when I was in the university entrance class. But when the book was published... Mm -hmm the university listed as recommended reading for the BA in Singhala. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Uh, so, no, I had a few good uh, breaks in life like that yeah. because th I put this also for my father's... You know, my father did two or three things in my life which made me... One other thing he did was from the age of nine, mm -hmm. he wanted me to be like Kanagarika Dharmapala or Sardibi Jayatilaka, whom he regarded as among the greatest of orators of the country. So he would get me to be a speaker, mm. train me in public speaking from the age of nine. Was that difficult for you? Or At did you time, seem to take to it? Uh, as far as I remember, there are many days when I cried when he wanted <laughs> me to memorize long speeches and deliver it into the, in the city, in the temple, in the, sometimes in his own office. Mm. Uh, but... Um, Today I'm very grateful to him because, yes. uh, uh, you know, I have absolutely no problem in speaking for three, four hours yeah, without exactly. uh, uh, notes because he, that's all the training that he put me into. What about the writing? Was that, did that come easily to you or did you yeah, have to work on that? Right, both speaking and writing uh -huh. turn out to be equally easy for me. Okay. 
आई कैन इजिली राइट अप टू फिफ्टी पेजेस अ डे वाओ And do you use a computer when you write now, or now do you I, I, now I do it on the computer? But okay. I also do longhand. Longhand too, okay. and because most of my writing, in fact, there's a couple of books. There's one book called The Voices of Ancient Ceylon, mm-hmm. uh, Sri Lanka, uh, which I wrote entirely in airports and planes, uh, because I want to see how much time I could gain, the, uh, use profitably, yeah. waiting for planes and all that. Wow! Uh, so even today, I can write in the plane. I can write in an airport. If somebody says the plane is four hours late, I to go and order some tea, and I'll start. <laughs> I always paper and write something. No, that Wonderful. writing came easy. So I don't know. The, your main question I still not answered is how did I become so involved with Buddhism? Yes. Okay. The more I studied our literature and the culture of our part of the world, uh-huh. the more uh, the I had a great sense of esteem that I am not only born. to a religion but i am born to a great culture yes the literature that buddhism represented the art that uh, have been created under inspiration of buddhism in all over the world so i started looking at buddhist heritage from every possible angle mm. and to see how uh, so many things could be inspired by this one man the buddha and who did not claim to be a messenger of a god or a messenger of a supernatural being he didn't consider him to be a, a person who brought something new he said all i did was you know, discover the path to a lost city that's how we described the nibbana the highest goal of emancipation that the buddhist present and every one of those things inspired me and uh, i started reading the discourses of the buddha uh, from different angles and mm-hmm. every time uh, i found something interesting the buddha came out of his own words and read in pali uh, i think to uh, for the major part was the reason for me to get that uh, feel yeah or the i when you read pali you are feel that you are talking to the buddha or Buddha is talking to you and directly, you are, huh? directly. Uh, directly. Yeah. And the language that he used and the way that he uh, sometimes played with words, played with ideas, uh, all turned out to be uh, so very fascinating to a young mind. And I started sharing this with people, mm-hmm. and I found that uh, it was a very interesting uh, conversation opener, uh, many opportunities. So. i found that uh, buddhism made me uh, to a great extent a sought after person people ask me to give public speeches on what i thought about uh, various aspects and um, even in a dinner uh, people will come around me and say ask questions so buddhism and me had some kind of uh, close relationship in social life as well but what was the, the what gave me the biggest impetus was in 1954 i was assistant secretary to the prime minister of sri lanka wow and uh, the reason why i was given that position very young was i had a phd number 1 and i was one of the very few people in the civil service at that time who used singhala uh, english and tamil the three languages that the people of sri lanka used mm. with equal ability because i could read write and speak in all three languages 
and the prime minister's office at that time was grappling with the difficulty of even working in singhala because the civil service in the past just before my generation very often took pride in saying my education is entirely in english and i cannot speak singhala mm. or i cannot speak tamil mm. but here i was there so this i was there and in 1954 the minister of home affairs was planning to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of buddhism according to the southern tradition which fell in 1956 okay and he wanted it to be a government inspired activity hmm. and recommended a very senior civil servant who was in provincial administration to take that position and organize it and it was my duty as the assistant secretary to the prime minister to get the prime minister's approval for transferring this senior officer from the field uh, to the ministry for this work and the prime minister looks at uh, the name and says guruge uh, i think you should do this wow so i find myself given a program to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of, of the buddha's death in 1954 i go to this new ministry uh, and set up a new department and i undertake uh, a number of projects uh, an encyclopedia of buddhism the translation of the uh, the buddhist canon from pali into singhala because at that time we still did not have a complete singhala translation and this was 1955 54 54 and didn't have a complete translation no wow so uh, that was one job then to set and do the start of singhali an encyclopedia in the singhali language to restore the temple of the tooth which was in a very shabby condition and it's in kandhi sri lanka in kandhi sri lanka yes, okay. a number of those uh, important activities yeah. with that program and here at the age of 25 i am involved in a very major activity with a committee of 350 eminent buddhists of the country uh, mm-hmm. the 175 buddhist monks and 175 lay leaders uh, interacting with uh, india burma thailand cambodia where we were having some uh, consultation so that we don't do the same things in the different places that uh, uh, coming under the influence of uh, radha krishnan who was then the assistant was well, the vice president of the india and the greatest of uh, the indian philosoph- philosophers of current time and all this made me uh, less of a civil servant and more of a scholar yes and buddhist i would I'm think a buddhist scholar, to have yeah. that much buddhism around you yeah. lay ordained all these countries and wow. that is where if there was a commitment made to buddhism and mm-hmm. that done, and the, by the time that 1956 the celebrations were concluded that 50 years ago exactly i had already d- decided if there's anything that i want to do it is something for the promotion of buddhist studies mm-hmm. uh, promotion of buddhist literature understanding of buddhist art and um, like this uh, sharing my thoughts with those who are interested in knowing what buddhism can contribute to the to world peace to the personal uh, satisfaction as well as the uh, sense of peace the mental uh, the peace of mind yes. that we are all after 
uh, and to be a better person. Yes. Now, one of the things you brought up in one of the classes I took from you was the fact that in your early life, most of your Buddhist contacts were Theravada. You, you hadn't really been involved with a lot of Mahayana or Vajrayana. And then you were a UNICEF representative in France. UNESCO. UNESCO. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and you spoke about how that sort of changed the way you looked at Buddhism. Because now you became aware of this great diversity. And, and yet, like Colonel Alcott, those 14 or 15 items could all be agreed upon. And, and now you come in contact with Mahayana and Vajrayana. What was your response to that? How did you, did you feel comfortable? Did you feel threatened? Did you feel inspired? You see, it's a very interesting question because as far back as 1954 when I was asked to do Buddha Jayanti, I started preparing what is called a Buddha Jayanti souvenir. Mm. And uh, one of the committee members suggested, why don't you get into this souvenir an article from each of the Buddhist countries or countries where there is a Buddhist population mm. on the condition of Buddhism in each of those countries. So I had from Japan, Korea, China, Vietnam, right down to Afghanistan, which had a Buddhist tradition. Mm-hmm. I had made requests through their foreign dignitaries for articles. And I was editing this, and I had already a great feeling that uh, Colonel Alcott was correct, that there is a, the, you know, the crux of Buddhism mm-hmm. is one, and what has grown around it are uh, ritual, customs, taboos, and things like that, which are specific to each country. Okay. So it was purely theoretical, and uh, my being, also with, along with Pali, I have learned Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And Sanskrit is the language in which the Mahayana texts were written. Mm-hmm. So I was familiar with many Mahayana texts in my Sanskrit studies. But I was not sure the degree to which this life of Buddhism is to be discovered or found in the various countries that are far away from Sri Lanka. Mm. I knew India because I travelled to India many times in connection with this work and um, there you meet uh, people again of Southern Buddhism because this is the one that I dealt with. Mm-hmm. Very little, if at all, some Tibetan that you meet in temples rather than in an uh, organised situation. Uh, Thailand you meet the same Southern Buddhists, mm-hmm. Myanmar or Burma is the same, Cambodia is the same. So I had no idea about how the Buddhists lived their lives, practiced uh, so much. Till I, because if you want to do this study in Asia, it meant thousands of miles of travel yeah. from Sri Lanka sure. and an enormous amount of time to be spent in each place just to understand uh, how Buddhism in each country was. But here I find myself in Paris. And there, practically every Buddhist tradition from every country is represented with a temple and a community. Mm. (coughs) And to my great surprise, what I would have taken uh, tens of years for me to learn, I could do by just going from one street to another. Mm. Over a weekend I could go to three temples and know how they did things in Korea, 
how did they think in Japan or how did they think in in Vietnam? So this was a great revelation to me. Excuse mm. <coughs> me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you do you see? I know we we only have about 15 more minutes because you have a, a prior uh, engagement. But I, I, I'd like to do another interview with you, uh, if we could, because I don't think we can get your whole story in in the next 15 minutes. Do you, do you see any similarities now in America and France? Because I know specifically in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area, every Buddhist tradition is represented. It is so with regard to the entire West. Mm-hmm. That phenomenon which I first observed in Paris can be observed in Chicago, mm. in New York, in Los Angeles, mm. in uh, Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, in Australia, in, uh, in uh, Melbourne. It, so it had become a phenomenon of the Western culture with what we call the Buddhist diaspora from Asia, where due to a variety of things, starting with 1949-1950, the changes that took place in mainland China, mm. where the Tibetans started leaving the country and oh, going yes. to different places. Yes. The, the Mahayana Buddhists left China and went to other various other places. Then what happened in Vietnam with regard to the fall of Vietnam and the, the challenge of communism and so on. What happened in Asia and in the other places due to the economic problems including Sri Lanka, Thailand, Myanmar, mm. when uh, uh, people in search of better ways of living, better opportunities, started coming to Western countries. Mm-hmm. And that Buddhist diaspora, which mainly due to other reasons, has brought in the Buddhist culture of each of these countries in very tangible form into compact areas in all the Western, big, big Western cities. Mm-hmm. So that if you want to have a museum of Buddhism, I say the museum of Buddhism is Los Angeles. <laughs> because you want to go to a Thai temple, there's what Thai. Sure. Uh, you want to go to a Tibetan temple, you go to Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to Garden Grove, you see the Vietnamese influence. Sure. So, so forth and so on. Yeah. There is no tradition which is left unrepresented. And uh, the place where you are, the University of the West, here is the representative of tha- uh, Taiwanese Buddhism mm-hmm. and Fokuan Shan system. And uh, we are, uh, I think I'll say, we are one of the uh, huge network of 200 odd temples and institutions that have been established by uh, Venerable Xin Yun. Yes. Uh, so, around the, the world. world. Around the world. So this is the kind of uh, the universality that we have been able to achieve. Now, with your perspective, which is which goes is is very large, what can you see American Buddhism becoming? Because every culture has their own Buddhism, yeah. and America will have its own Buddhism one day. Yeah, America has its own Buddhism already. Okay. Uh, if you one were to read the. the the articles that appear in a journal like Tricycle, mm-hmm. uh, one is quite convinced by the fact that uh, there emerges certain concerns, certain understandings. Uh, and the Americans, while 
those who are becoming more and more interested in the uh, many alternative approaches that Buddhism provides for their practice. So that, you know, we are, I, in a speech that I made in a church recently, I said, uh, in USA, uh, Buddhism is like a mall. Because in a mall you go and in, uh, you go to a, oh, like a shopping mall. Shopping mall. Okay. Yeah. You go to a th uh, th th you can go to a shoe shop to buy your shoes. Mm -hmm. You go to a tie shop to buy your ties, and you go another place to buy your shirts and trousers and so on. That everything is in one place available to you, mm -hmm. but in uh, in a way that you can choose you in, uh, according to your needs. It's in one place, but they're all separate businesses. Separate businesses, separate okay. things. I see. So, if you are somebody to whom the whole impact of your spiritual life is that you are after peace of mind, you want to see how to keep your life quiet, how to get over your daily stresses, and you want to get the benefit of what meditation can give you, mm -hmm. Here is one place where you could go, and that place will have, the, if you want to do the Chinese way, or you want to do the Japanese way, the Zen way, or you want to do, there's meditation available in so many different forms, mm -hmm. and all within uh, the all, uh, within this one single mall. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, you think what you need is that peace of mind that you get by concentrating on something religious, something uh, the, like chanting texts mm. or conducting a, a session of worship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are chanting, for example, sure. Sure. you can do that. Yeah. If on the other hand, all that you are interested in is concentration of your mind that you obtain by repeating a particular formula, Mm -hmm. Whether it be Namo Amita 4, like a mantra, yeah, yeah. or whether it is uh, Om Mani Padme Hum as from mm -hmm. the Tibetan, mm -hmm. or Namo Orenge Kyo as it be in the Pure Land Buddhism, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, the, in the, uh, the, uh, the Nature and Buddhism, Social, yeah. 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 all that is available to you, mm -hmm. and you choose according to it. So we find that when two uh, the American Buddhists meet, they might often find that uh, they are Buddhists because they have interest in one or the other, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in the same. Mm -hmm. And this diversity is being recognized and respected. Mm -hmm. But now there are places like Shasta Abbey. Yeah. I don't know if you've been there, but it's uh, Soto Zen. It was started by a British woman. And... Um, and they've done all their services in English. They said, we're going to chant English, in, yeah. in English. And they also brought an organ in. It almost has a Catholic sort of chanting at, uh, atmosphere to it. Uh, in American Buddhism, Western Buddhism seems to uh, really be concerned about gender equality. Uh, Western Buddhism, American Buddhism seems to be concerned about going out and making a change in the world, not only finding peace within yeah, yourself, yeah. but going. And, and sometimes in Asian communities, going out into the world, being proactive, engaged Buddhism, isn't high on the list. It's more about devotion and family and your own. So do you see those kind of things starting to evolve now, where people are feeling more comfortable chanting in English? People are feeling more comfortable not having to um, 
uh, go to maybe uh, a Japanese center and where it's Japanese is spoken, but going to a center where English is spoken and still feeling like a Buddhist? Yeah, because this is the historical contribution of Buddhism. Mm. Mm. Buddhism, wherever it went, adapt to the local conditions. Okay. Say, Namo Amitaya or Amitabhaya Buddhaya was original Sanskrit. Mm. In Chinese it became Namo Amitabha 4. Mm. In Japanese it is Namo Amitabutsu. In uh, Vietnamese it could be something like Namo Amitabhat. Mm -hmm. It was possible for all these language variations to come in because Buddhism encouraged it. The Buddha himself, with regard to language, had a very interesting statement to make. Uh, somebody wanted to translate all these uh, discourses into Sanskrit so that it's available to the elite, okay. two of his disciples. And Buddha said, no. Mm. Let each one learn my teachings in their own language. Mm. Now, as a result, what happened was that the Buddha's teachings are found in so many different languages. Yeah. Uh, Pali is it's the best preserved uh -huh. and Pali canon is best preserved in a complete form for no other reason than that it was the earliest to be written down in Sri Lanka somewhere in 80 BCE. Okay. So it was the earliest to be written out so it is in available in a compact in a full uh, complete form. In Chinese you get the Sanskrit canon which we have only discovered in parts, but in the Chinese translation, they are in full, mm. which are called the Agama Sutras oh, of yes, the sir. Chinese. Yes. The Agama Sutras of Chinese and the Pali Canon is 80% the same contents. Wow. Uh, it's the, the, because it's the Sanskrit and the Pali Canon that we find, that the Indian canons that we find, they are uh, very well preserved. Now, this a variety of languages that were used was further encouraged by the fact that commentaries were written in so many different languages. Okay. In fact, the reason to call Pali Pali, that language Pali, was to distinguish the language of the text from the language of the commentary. Mm. In Sri Lanka, the earliest commentaries on the Buddha's teachings were written in Singhala, in okay. the native language. And from about the 3rd century BCE to the 5th century current era, for nearly 800 years, the commentaries were in the Sinhala language. And Indian scholars came to Sri Lanka in the 5th century and wanted permission to translate into the same language as the Buddha's teachings so that these commentaries are worldwide available. Mm. So... It was only in the 5th century that the Pali commentaries came. And is that where Buddha Gosha comes in? Buddha Gosha, that's where Buddha Gosha okay. came. Buddha Gosha came okay. for that purpose. So you see, mm -hmm. from a language point of view, any language is the language of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. with, with the fullest authority or the injunction of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. He wanted you to study in your own language. So eventually, Buddhism in America... Will be will, English. Will be in English. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to be. It 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 does for a couple of reasons. One that, that I have to smile at is most Americans only speak English. Yeah. <laughs> they're not they're not bilingual or trilingual. And besides, 
Uh, another important thing with regard to Buddhism is we have been speaking more about Buddhism and it's uh, from uh, the background of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about Buddhism as a philosophy, yeah. it is an intellectual uh, yeah. the, the, uh, aspect. It has a great intellectual aspect. The intellectual function of Buddhism is perhaps the most important. Because the Buddha wanted us to think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He didn't want us to accept even his teachings. When he said, "Don't accept what is in the book. Don't uh, accept what is in the uh, comes to you as Don't believe what is uh, passed on to from the, in the family, and don't believe anything because you like the teacher." The Buddha player, the sure. Buddha placed before you a choice of the highest nature, recognizing your critical acumen. Yes. The human being was supposed to have, and Buddha recognized this, the ability to think for himself and decide. Yes. And that is, the, when you regard that as the most important part, aspect of Buddhism, we have to promote Buddhism to be understood in the language in which the people can understand. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not something, you know, while I have nothing, absolutely nothing that I say as uh, can be regarded as critical of um, chanting or doing things that are more uh, drill-like, mm -hmm. but Buddhism, the Buddha would say, understand, yeah. realize, question. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Buddhist education, there are many the interesting statements that the Buddha has made. And one of the things that he says, you must not only learn what the teacher says, but you must have that what the teacher says tested mm. so, by question. So why he says it? Not only uh, learn what he says, but why he says why it. Why he says it, yeah. and whether you agree with it. That yeah. we so this... Uh, is what makes Buddhism attractive to most people with good education. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked Dr. Ratnasara a question about that. Yeah. I said, Dr. Ratnasara, you keep talking about the the philosophical aspects of Buddhism. Why do we why do we have to have the rituals? Why do we have to have the devotional practices? And he looked at me and said this. He said, Well, Buddhism is like a tree, and he said the core of the tree is the philosophy, uh, because that does change people, but but the bark of the tree are the rites and rituals. And if we take the bark of the tree away from it, the core will die. And it seems that people like rites and rituals. And if we only had the philosophy, he said, Buddhism would have died out a long time ago. Yes, you know, that, that, that I keep there one more thing. If Buddha only preached to the people to get themselves uh, the, to Nibbana, mm. After the first generation of people who came in touch with Buddhism, there would have been no Buddhism because everyone would have gone to Nibbana. <laughs> you know, Buddha yeah. had the division of labor for the Sangha. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There were monks who were encouraged to proceed to meditation and proceed to the realization of Nibbana. Yeah. Because those are the ones who had the capacity, eligibility and the background required for that. Mm -hmm. Others he trained as people who are, in fact it was called the office of books. Mm. So were the teachers or the scholars? Scholars. Okay. That are educators, mm -hmm. the, who had to maintain and preserve the teachings and pass it from one generation to another. Yeah. He had people to them. Yeah. He had people who knew how to 
uh, the, do the jurisprudence of the, the discipline of the monks and nuns. At the same oh, time, the Vinaya, the Vinaya. Yeah, Vinaya Dharas, yeah. as you call it. Yeah. Then they are the people who had learned the doctrines and remember the doctrines and study them, the philosophical content and so on. Mm. So, uh, this is where you know, the, when I say I go into various aspects of Buddhism and everything and, uh, makes me so enthusiastic about it. Uh, here was somebody who came to teach the people how to end suffering. But if he ended the suffering of all the people who happened to be uh, coming in touch with him at that time, there would have been nobody said. <laughs> we wouldn't have heard that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Uh, Gergi, I, it's 5 o'clock now, and I know you have another appointment. And I, I want to thank you very much for taking this hour and spending with me and, and speaking about Buddhism and speaking about your life, too. I, I, I learned a lot from you today. And I, I heard some things I hadn't heard before, and I appreciate that, too. And I would love to get together again and maybe do a second or third part, because and you're... Whatever is of interest or use to you, I'm always at the, your disposal. Well, thank you very much. The promotion of Buddhism is the second, uh, second to me, and the first is just breathing. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you for spending time with me today, and, and we'll do it again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it. That was my interview with Dr. Ananda Gurge, Dean of Academic Affairs and Director of the International Academy of Buddhism at the University of the West in Rosemead, California. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Gurge, his website is ananda-gurge.com. That's A-N-A-N-D-A-G-U-R-U-G-E.com. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to hear more of my podcasts and interviews, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. I have all my podcasts listed there, and I have a couple of videos as well. If you're interested in some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info, where you have an opportunity to download over 150 ebooks for free on Buddhism. If you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. That's kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, that does it. That's the end of this podcast. Until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>